Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Oh, I'm in these parables. Um, how many of you guys have enjoyed the parable series? Yeah, I mean, it's okay if you didn't. You could boo a little bit if you were like, boo. But no, I'm glad that you guys like it. Um, we've really enjoyed going through and teaching it. I've enjoyed the many different voices that we've been able to lend to the parables through uh, the blessing that we have of the teaching team here at Damascus Road. Um, and I'm excited to see where God's going to take us uh, the rest of this month and into next month um, as we prepare for uh, where God is going to lead us uh, still in the fall. And so as we look at these parables, we see that they are these kind of short stories by Jesus. Um, and these short stories are designed to teach the disciples. They're designed to correct the Pharisees. And they're also just designed to encourage, to encourage all those who follow after them. And what we find is that in these parables, oftentimes they're analogies. They're not designed to be kind of one-for-one interpretations where we try to develop an entire theology of who God is out of this one story. But instead, they are filled with one or two points um, that Jesus is trying to make um, about life, oftentimes about the kingdom of God. And what I find is that as Jesus shares these stories and as we look into what the finer points of his stories are, what He's trying to make the point of the kingdom of God to be what I find is that they oftentimes blow my perception of reality out of the water. Um, what I believe to be true or what my imagination for what reality could be or should be is oftentimes shattered or expanded to be greater than what I'm necessarily comfortable with. For example, when we looked at the parable of the vineyard workers, where you had workers that worked all day, and then you had workers that worked one hour. My imagination for justice is that the workers that worked all day should somehow be paid a little bit more than the worker that worked one hour. But instead, in Jesus' parable, Jesus expands our imagination and teaches us that the kingdom of God and justice is actually about people getting what they need for the day. And so the people that worked one hour they got paid what they needed for the day, just as the person that worked the whole day got paid it for the day. And so Jesus expands our imagination for what justice really is. In the parable of the lost sons, I feel like if I am that father in the parable of the lost sons, and my son wishes me to be dead, leaves my family, kind of spits on the ground on his way out, and spends all of my inheritance or his inheritance recklessly, I feel like I would be tempted to be bitter and to be angry at my son and to potentially bar him from re-entering into the family. But instead, Jesus challenges us and he shows us that the heart of the Father and that the heart of the kingdom is to have open arms and to have this kind of prodigal forgiveness as he welcomes the son back into the family. And what we also find in the story of the prodigal son is that you and I are also beloved heirs, beloved sons and daughters that have been close to the Father the entire time. And so Jesus is expanding our imagination of what the kingdom of God could be like. And what's beautiful is that as we look at these parables, our expectations are so much, are crushed, and they're so much expanded, and, uh, and it's because of his spirit working in us. And so this morning, as we dive into today's parable, if you guys would like to turn to Matthew 18, 21 through 25, I believe that Jesus, again, wants to crush our expectations and expand them 
into something greater than what we could ever imagine. And he plans to do that through his spirit this morning. So as you're turning there, I'd like to pray over this passage for us. So let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for these parables. We thank you for the ways that you have taught us this summer the heart of your kingdom and what this kingdom of yours looks like. And God, I thank you that we are members, that this body here, that we are all members of your kingdom. God, I pray that we would know that, that we would own that, that we would experience that in our bones. That you, the God of the universe, are living inside of us, that you are breathing inside of us. That we have an inheritance in your kingdom, and that we are members of your kingdom. And so God, I pray that you would form us this summer into the image of your kingdom, into the image of the citizens of your kingdom. God, let us be ever aware of your presence inside of us, seeking to transform us and expand our imagination in you. In your name we pray. Amen. So Matthew 28, 21-35, this morning's parable is of the uh, wicked servant, or the unmerciful servant. And it starts in verse 21. Peter comes up to Jesus and he asks him this question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Now oftentimes Peter gets a really bad rap for suggesting seven times. A lot of times we just say, oh, Peter, you're just being foolish seven times. Come on, man. Don't you know that the answer is 77? Like, don't you know that? But really, when Peter comes to Jesus, he's coming with a real, with a real question. Peter is asking the question, how many times does my brother have to sin against me until I can do something about it, until I can get even about it? And I think that's a fair question. I think it's a question that you and I have sometimes, especially when somebody keeps committing the same offense against us over and over again. We ask, our, we ask God, God, how long? How long must I be patient? How long must I forgive? And what we miss is that Peter, in suggesting seven times, is actually being really generous. He's being really generous with his suggestion towards Jesus because he has this question and he fulfills it with this answer. He's like, I think, I think seven might be a good answer. That might be a good answer. That's a lot of times to forgive somebody before taking retribution. I mean, if you think about it, seven times, that's, that's going to test your patience. And because, especially in this time, the rabbis taught that you only had to forgive somebody three times before retribution. So Peter's like, well, I'll double that, add one. And uh, that should be a good suggestion for Jesus of how many times. Like, you know, so Peter thinks that he's, he's really reaching for it. He thinks that his imagination for forgiveness is really broad, that it's really expansive. And Jesus is about to show Peter just how small his imagination for forgiveness actually is. And Jesus replies to him saying, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. Now this number 77 times is not a literal number. Um, it's a figurative number. And it, this figurative number, this figure of speech of 77 times carries with it. Does it say 77 times or 77? Okay, so Rebecca had it right. So, yeah, 140, yeah. Gotcha. My text is wrong here. But anyways, a bunch of times here. 70 times 7. Yes, it's a figure of speech that means everlasting. It has this meaning of everlasting, um, everlasting forgiveness. And so 
Peter's like, here, I think I'm going to expand the limit to seven. And Jesus says, no, Peter, your imagination is, is way too small still. Instead, the imagination of the kingdom is that it should be everlasting, that there should be everlasting forgiveness. And when we talk about forgiveness, it's often a really tough word. And we're going to get honest about forgiveness here in a little bit. But let's continue on with what Jesus has to say and how Jesus expands Peter's imagination for what forgiveness in the kingdom of God would actually look like. And so verse 23, it says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven might be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and for payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and imploring him, he said, have patience with me and I will pay you back everything. And out of pity for him, his master of the servant released him and forgave him of his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. For this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. And as when his master heard this, he summoned him, and he said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So will it be when my heavenly Father will do to one, every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So there's three points this morning that I want to draw our attention to in this parable. And the first point is God's reckless and absurd heart for forgiveness towards us. The first point is that God has a reckless and absurd heart of forgiveness towards us. The second point is what it is to forgive others. And then the third part is a hope for reconciliation. And so that's where we're going this morning is God's amazing and absurd heart of forgiveness towards us. What it is to forgive others and what it is to hope for reconciliation in our relationships. What we have here in this parable is that the parable begins with a king who is ready to settle debts with his servants. And while he's going through his records, he comes across a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, talent is actually a measurement of weight. It's not actually a denomination of money. It's a measurement of weight. It weighed about 75 pounds. And when the Bible talks about talents, the assumption is that it was either of some form of precious metal, probably silver, or gold. And so if somebody had just even five talents of silver or gold in that day, it was, you were considered a millionaire. And so to have 10,000 talents, it would be like to be a billionaire or a trillionaire. Like the, it's an absurd amount of money. And Jesus is using this amount of money as, as kind of um, literary hyperbole to show how great the debt is that this servant owed, that it was beyond any type of capacity that the servant could have to pay him back. And so we don't know the true value of 10,000 talents, but we know 
that it is so large that this servant could not even begin to dream to pay back the debt that he owed to the king. And so the king calls him to account, and the king knows that this servant can't pay. The servant knows that the servant can't pay, but what does the servant do? The servant, when his life is on the line, when the king is threatening, selling him and his family and all he possesses in the slavery, what does the servant do? He falls on his knees and begins to beg for his life. He begins to make foolish promises, promises that he cannot uphold. But this is what you do when your life is on the line, right? When your life is on the line, you just beg for mercy. And you'll say whatever it is that you are supposed to say or could say to get out of that jam. And so that's what this servant does. And what the servant asks, he says, if you were to have patience with me, if I only would have more time, I could repay this debt. But the reality is that there's no way that he ever could. Well, this is his plea. And I think the reality or the danger here is that you and I can fall into the same temptation as this servant. Is that we can see God as the big bad debt collector, right, to call us to account of our sins. And we can find ourselves falling on our knees and saying, God, just give me more time. Just give me more time and I can do more good works. Just give me more time and I can be more righteous. Just give me more time and I can settle accounts with you. I can make up for the sin that's in my life. Just give me more time. But the reality is, and the reality that both the servant needs and the reality that you and I need is that we need forgiveness from the king. And shockingly, this is exactly what the king does in this parable, is that he forgives the servant of this incalculable debt. The king does not exact revenge. The king would have been warranted to. I mean, I'm honestly, not, I'm honestly surprised that the story doesn't go. He brought him before him. He thought about selling him into slavery, but instead knew that he wouldn't get any money back from, the, from selling him into slavery. And so instead, he got his friends together and killed them for sport. Because that, that, that wouldn't have been outside of the realm of the king to do like at that point because the debt was so high and the amount that he would have received for selling off the servant would have been so little that he could have done whatever he wanted to punish the servant for sport. But instead, he forgives the debt and he absorbs the debt and he allows the servant to walk away. He allows the servant walk away. My question is, how does this make you feel? How does this make you feel that the servant that owed 10,000 talents, this amazing sum of money, is just forgiven and gets to walk away free? I think a lot of times we're like moved. We're like, oh man, that's amazing. It's amazing that he would forgive so generously. But I think if this were to happen in real life situation, if this were to happen um, in our world today, we would actually be outraged. We would actually be shocked. We'd be appalled. We'd be on our computers writing angry blogs and Facebook statuses. How reckless and how absurd would it be for the government to forgive trillions of dollars of massive debt that was accumulated through unwise financial planning and spending. How frustrated and furious would be. I mean, it feels kind of like 2008, right? 
It feels a little bit like 2008, right? Where like this massive amount of debt is accumulated recklessly and it's all forgiven. And it's all forgiven. And I think we miss this kind of side of grace that forgiveness is reckless and it's absurd and that it's costly and that it's wholly unfair. And I use this word absurd because I think in our human imagination, in our human fallenness, to forgive a debt of that sum seems reckless. It seems unfair. It seems wholly unreasonable. I mean, if you forgave that amount of debt, what prevents him from going up and racking up more debt, right? What prevents him from continuing in the same way of life? And so oftentimes we read this story and we miss the side of grace because we've been programmed. We've been programmed to see this story as, the, as we are the beneficiaries of the forgiveness from the king, which we are. And it's good that we see this parable this way, but oftentimes when all we have is just good feelings for the debt that's forgiven, we aren't honest with ourselves with how we would feel if that were to actually happen to somebody else, somewhere else, under different circumstances. And we miss how costly and how absurd and how unreasonable and how unfair forgiveness really is. Because the reality is, is that when a debt is forgiven, that debt has to go somewhere. It has to be absorbed. And in this story, the king absorbs that debt. That debt that this person had, the king says, I will go and make that my debt. I will absorb that into my finances. And what we find is that in God, God desires so deeply to forgive us that he finds it worth it to sense his son into enemy territory to where he will surely die for being exactly who he says that he is, the Son of God. And this is what our God does because he so desperately wants to absorb our debt. He wants to absorb our debt. And the only way that our debt can be absorbed by the king was through a perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what absorbing this debt cost us. Forgiveness is reckless. It's unfair. It's absurd. But it's exactly what we need. It's exactly what we need. It's exactly what we desire for. Because if you and I placed in that same circumstance before the king, we would make the same pleas and we would hope for the same thing. And to be honest, I believe that forgiveness of the debt is so much beyond what we could even imagine. That it's only through God, it's only through Jesus coming and saying, I will absorb that debt for you, that we're able to have the imagination of forgiveness. That we're able to imagine a debt being canceled and absorbed. The problem is, is that I think a lot of times when we go to Jesus and we go to the King and we feel the weight of our sins, we have a hard time accepting that forgiveness and we tell him, just give me more time, Jesus. Just give me more time to get my life right. Just give me more time to get my affairs in orders and I could pay you back. But our God says, no. No to that. No to that thinking. Because you're my son and you're my daughter. And there's nothing that you can do to pay me back. There's no amount of righteousness that you can do to not owe me a debt. But instead, I gave you my son. 
so that you might not have a debt anymore, so that debt of yours could be absorbed. Go and experience forgiveness. This is the first picture of forgiveness, of our debt being paid, of our debt being absorbed. And this is the picture that the kingdom of God is about. This is the imagination of what forgiveness is. The picture of a king absorbing a level of debt on behalf of his servants. Now the second picture that we get in this parable is the exact opposite. The servant that has been just released of his debt goes out and finds one of his fellow servants, one of his co-workers per se of the king. They're both servants of the king. They're both of equal playing field. It's easy to read this parable and think that the guy that he goes after is some sub-servant of his. But no, it's a, it's a co-worker. He goes to a co-worker of him that owes him 100 denarii, about four months' wages, and he just grabs him and starts choking him out. And if I'm that, and if I'm that co-worker, I'm like, what is that all about? You know, and you can imagine he's choking him out. He's like, give me what you owe me. Give me what, and I can imagine just, you know, hands around my neck trying to, just a second, like, let's talk, you know, and he's just choking him out, choking the life out. Give me what you owe. And he gets out, I can't. And he's like, gets the jailer. Send him to jail until he can pay me what he owes me. And all the other coworkers are kind of standing around also being like, whoa, that was, that was a little intense. Like, uh, and, and word gets back to the king. And so the king calls this servant of his back to his presence and says, what, what is this all about that I'm hearing? That you choked the man out? That you demanded a hundred denarii? And he asks him, shouldn't you have also had mercy on him? as I've had mercy on you. And the king in his rage instills, reinstates the debt and throws the servant into prison. And Jesus warns us, Jesus warns us at the end of his parable saying, so this my father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I mean, this is a warning from Jesus about what it is if we don't forgive, if we don't pass on what we've received from him, if we don't take the forgiveness that we've received from him and pass it on to others who owe far less than their lives to us. And what I find with this kind of (coughs) warning of forgive your brother from your heart, the question is, what is it to forgive? What is it to forgive my brother? And I believe it's an important question to answer. I believe it's an important question to answer, not only because of the warning and the importance that Jesus gives it, but also because I believe that if we're honest, there's people in our lives, in our hearts, that we are holding on to unforgiveness with. There are people in our lives that we are holding bitterness towards, that we are kind of figuring out how to exact vengeance towards. There are people that we have resentment towards. There there are people in our lives that we are still holding on to a form of unforgiveness. And so it's important for us to know what, what is it to forgive our brother? Because I think sometimes what prevents us from forgiving our brother and sisters is that we don't really know what forgiveness is and we don't really know quite how. And so for some of us, we're holding on to this person and the forgiveness, the level of unforgiveness in our heart is so high that we can't even speak that person's name. We'll refer to them as that person or the one 
or you know who I'm talking about, we begin to dename them. We begin to take their name out of the situation because to say their name is to give them value. It's to give them meaning and purpose, and, and we just can't do that. And so we take away their name. Maybe there's a person that you're thinking of that you have an offense against. That To think of that person is to think of the offense, and to think of the offense is to think of the person. And in this situation, this person is someone that you would wish you would never see again. And maybe you have to see them daily. Maybe they still exist somewhere on the planet and your life would just be easier. You'd be at more peace if they just didn't exist anymore. I mean, there are varying levels of unforgiveness and I think that all of us at some point in our life have been hurt to a degree that maybe we've understood this to the deepest levels. Maybe some of us understand it and we just have kind of superficial unforgiveness going on in our hearts, but unforgiveness, no matter little or big, can entrap us, can hold us back from experiencing the kingdom the way that God has designed us to experience it. And now here we are this morning, and we're talking about this parable of absurd, radical forgiveness. And you might be sitting here overwhelmed like, man, I don't know. I don't know how to do this because it seems like the preacher's really telling me I need to forgive this person and I just don't know if I can. I mean, I can barely say their name. How am I supposed to get to forgiveness? It's like I know what I should do and I'm feeling convicted about it, but I'm also feeling really guilty about it because I haven't been able to forgive this person for years. And I've heard messages on forgiveness. I just, I just don't know how to move forward. But my hope and my prayer for us this morning is that we would grow in our imagination of what forgiveness is. And I think when we talk about forgiveness, some things that might be helpful would be to talk about what forgiveness is not first. So let's, let's do that. Let's talk about some things that forgiveness is not. Because I think sometimes these things that forgiveness is not get lumped into what forgiveness is or what we think the definition of forgiveness is. And so the first thing that forgiveness is not is that it, it, forgiveness is not pretending that the offense never happened. I think a lot of times in our culture, the, the, the saying is forgive and forget and move on. And nothing could be further than the truth. Forgiveness is actually an opportunity to name the offense that occurred and to claim it and to say, you did X against me and it was not okay. Forgiveness allows that permission because what we see is we see the king, he's going through his record book and he sees this 10,000 talent offense against him, and he calls the servant to account. And he says, what is this? What is this that I find that you owe me 10,000 talents? And he forgives the debt afterwards. So there's this place in forgiveness that allows us to name and claim and say what you did was not okay. Which brings us to the second point that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not condoning the behavior. In no place in this parable did the king say, hey, you know what? It was okay that you spent 10,000 talents. He doesn't condone the behavior. He doesn't say, now that I've forgiven you, go ahead and take from the treasury whatever you will. I think the punishment that he set up was so severe that the message was conveyed very clearly that what the servant did was not okay. 
And so forgiving somebody is not the same as condoning their behavior. And I think that we're afraid of that. We're afraid of forgiving somebody because we're like, well, if I forgive them, then they're going to think it's okay. That, they, that it's okay for them to do it again. Or that it didn't hurt me. And I think in forgiveness we can be honest about the hurt that we've received. The third point that forgiveness is not is that forgiveness is not waiting for somebody to realize that they've done something wrong against you and for them to come to apologize. Because that day might never come. That day might never come. So if you're waiting to forgive somebody because you're waiting for them to realize, to have some epiphany that, oh man, what I said or did might have hurt you, might have offended you, might have been a sin against you, you might be waiting a really long time. You might be waiting a really long time for that to happen. Number four, forgiveness does not mean that there are still not consequences. You might have to forgive somebody while you're calling the police at the same time. And that's okay. That's okay for you to call the police, especially if the law has been broken, and still forgive that person in your heart. Again, I cannot imagine that the king allowed his servant to work in the same capacity that he did before, where he had access to 10,000 talents. I mean, this is a wise king. I don't think the king would be so foolish to allow this servant of his that spent so recklessly to have access to the same amount to where he could repeat the offense again further. And so there are consequences and there can still be forgiveness at the same time. And then finally, forgiving somebody is not the same as reconciliation. A lot of times we're afraid that, well, if I forgive somebody, then we've got to be friends again. Or if we forgive them, then the relationship has to be the same and we're just going to pretend that it didn't happen again. But remember, forgiveness isn't any of those things. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this hope of reconciliation at the end. But first, I want us to just kind of look at this list. And I hope that this list of forgiveness, of what forgiveness is not, frees you and allows your imagination to expand to say, maybe, maybe I can forgive them. If it means where I can be honest about the offense against me, if it means not condoning their behavior, Maybe there's, maybe there's room for forgiveness. Maybe there's a possibility for forgiveness to happen. And when we're honest, forgiveness is this process. It's not like flipping a switch. You can't just be like, oh, forgiven. I mean, in the best of relationships, it can be. And sometimes, like if Tony were to do something against me, Tony and I are close enough to where I could be like, hey, Tony, you did this. It really hurt. Um, you, know, are, you know, do you see that? Yeah, man, I see that. I didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I'll be like, hey, man, it's as if it never happened. And then we're good to go. And we keep walking down the road. You know, forgiveness, bam, happened. Reconciliation, bam, happened. But oftentimes, when we're talking about deep-seated forgiveness, where the offense is great and trust has been broken and relationships have been broken, what we find is that it's much more of a process. And it's not like flipping a switch. And I think what we need to do, what we need to do, I mean, can we just be honest for a moment? Can we just be honest about forgiveness and say that forgiveness hurts? That forgiveness hurts sometimes, that it hurts quite a bit, actually. And that it's a process to get over this hurt because a lot of times we feel guilty when we're forgiving somebody if we're feeling hurt and pain around it because we're like, well, the the reason for forgiveness is so that I would not feel this hurt and pain anymore. 
But the reality is, is that when someone has offended you to that level, there is a hurt and pain. There is a cost. And that cost has to be absorbed. And that cost will be absorbed through you, through absorbing that hurt and pain. I mean, look at Jesus, for example. Jesus came and he intentionally suffered and died on a cross to absorb our debt. The God of the universe is forced to look away from his son as he handed his son over to darkness so that we could be forgiven. Forgiveness hurts. And there's a cost to be absorbed. So what happens when we forgive somebody in reality, when we forgive somebody, it's saying, I will absorb the cost of what has been taken from me. And I release you from owing it. I will absorb the cost and I will release you from owing me anything towards that cost. This is forgiveness. And with this parable in mind, and as a community of spirit-filled believers, as, as members of the kingdom, as, as the spirit of God living within us, forgiveness is actually this passing on of something that we've already received. It's passing on what we've already received. It's taking what we've received through Jesus and it is passing it on to someone else. And saying, here, I've experienced forgiveness. I've experienced my sins, my debt absorbed in these ways, and I'm going to pass that on to you. And when we forgive people, we don't get to do this passing on passively. We don't get to do this passing on of what we've received to someone else passively. That's not how our Savior forgives. Rather, Jesus' forgiveness is active. It's through dying on a cross, and it's active in that it seeks to protect the heart of the offender. And he sends his spirit out to convict the world of its sin. I mean, what a, whoa, what an imagination for forgiveness. That forgiveness isn't just about absorbing debt, that forgiveness isn't just about setting you free from whatever bitterness that you feel in your heart, but what if forgiveness is actually about having the heart of your brother in mind, your offender, your enemy? That the reason and purpose of forgiveness is that it's actually for their sake, so that they might be healed, so that they might know what grace and light and life are all about. In this parable, the king addresses the servant of his error. His offense, he names the offense before he offers the forgiveness. And in the passage above, if you go just above this parable, Jesus is talking to his disciples about a situation where, what if a brother comes and sins against you? Or your enemy for that sake? And Jesus tells us that we need to go to them and make their sin known to them. And it's not so we can say, oh, gotcha. Oh, gotcha in your sin. But it's for the sake of gaining or keeping a brother. So forgiveness has always had this intent, this, this desire to preserve the life of the one who's doing the offense. It is to love our brother. It's to forgive. And we have to do it actively. We don't get to do this passively. I mean, which is more helpful to the offender? You have, an you have somebody that commits an offense against you and you remain silent. 
And I think we all do this because it's easy. It's easy to be passive. We remain silent. We get our feelings hurt. We get frustrated. We get angry. And maybe it's more than our feelings hurt. Maybe there is a true, deep, dark offense that having something is taken from us and it hurts. But we don't ever go and talk to that person ever again. And so there's no opportunity for you to speak what's been done to you when you're passive. There's no opportunity to proclaim that what's been done to you is wrong. There's no opportunity for them to know that what they've done to you is wrong and has affected you in these ways. And they deserve to know because we are broken, sinful, nasty people. And it's very possible that whoever hurt you wasn't aware of the level of profound hurt that you experienced. And they just went on their merry way. They just went on their merry way. And so in doing so, and remaining passive and remaining silent, you don't get to proclaim what's happened against you and what you've experienced. And at the same time, they never get the opportunity to repent. They never get the opportunity to confess. They never get the opportunity of being reconciled again if there just remains this chasm of passive silence. And what I find is, is that being active in forgiveness is also a check for us. It's a check for our heart. When Jesus says, hey, go to your brother who sinned against you and make him aware of your sin so that for this forgiveness can begin to happen with inside of you, what I find is that if I'm going to be active in my forgiveness, what I find is that this question of going to my brother and pointing out his wrong provides a check for me to ask, did my brother actually sin against me? Or did I just get my feelings hurt? Because I think sometimes we just get our feelings hurt. And we get bitter and we get vengeful. And there's really nothing to forgive because they really didn't sin against us. But in other times, I think there's places where there is true sin that's committed against us. And if that's the case, if I can answer that question, yes, I actually do believe that they sinned against me, then you must go to your brother. You must go to your sister and make them aware of the sin because that's what it is to love your brother. That's what it is to look out for your sister. So we have to be active in our forgiveness. No more passive forgiveness. Passive forgiveness will only lead us to further destruction. It will only keep you in the prison of your shame and your guilt. And it will only keep them in the prison of their continued rebellion. And it provides no opportunity for reconciliation. When we choose not to forgive, we hold on to bitterness. We hold on to vengeance. We hold on to resentment. And what this does is it prevents us from being people of the Spirit. This morning we testified that we are people of God's kingdom. We are people of the Spirit. But when we don't forgive, we act opposite of people of the Spirit. And it prevents us from being what we've been called to be to other people, and that is to be a blessing. The reason why Jesus calls Israel to his side is that they might be a blessing to the nations. The reason why we are forgiven and reconciled to God is so that we might be a blessing to the nation. And we do not forgive. We are unable to be a blessing towards others. And this is why there's judgment. This is why there's judgment for those who choose not to forgive. We either receive forgiveness and forgive others, 
or we give judgment to others and receive judgment upon ourselves. That's the way this works. We don't forgive to be forgiven. This is not a works righteousness in any way, but rather it's this active response, this active, intentional, purposeful response of being God's people who have received grace, who have been commissioned to make that grace known to the nations. That's why we forgive. Now, earlier I said that, recon- that forgiveness is not reconciliation. And it's not, because reconciliation requires two people. It requires both parties. It's true, it's possible to forgive and not experience reconciliation. You can do everything right. You can absorb the offense. You can actively forgive by making known the error of the offender, and they can choose not to accept it. They can ignore your offense. They can try gaslighting you. They can say, oh, no, that, that, you didn't actually experience it that way. I didn't actually do that to you. People do this all the time. People try and gaslight each other all the time. And gaslighting is this substitution of reality where it suggests a new form of reality on top of what actually happened. And so I go to you and say, you committed this offense against me. And you're like, no, you're remembering it wrong. It was actually like this. And then you start to buy into that. It's a psychological tool that people use to manipulate one another. And the term is gaslighting. And so you can do all of this. You can go and be honest. And they can try to manipulate you. They can reject your attempts to forgive them. They can ignore the error that they have made. And they can choose to walk away. And so they can still not hold your trust. But this does not mean that you haven't forgiven them in your heart. It's still possible for there to not be reconciliation, for there to still be forgiveness in your heart. And you can know if you've forgiven yourself, if you can forgiven them, if you can ask yourself these questions. Can I talk about this person without blowing up? Or every time that you talk about this person, does everyone kind of like take a step back and like, whoa, they said the name, and we all know when they say that name, you just, you just duck a little bit and say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you just, you just kind of let them blow their steam. If you're still in that state where people like take a step back when you say that name, you probably haven't forgiven them. Um, if you're in a place where you are still secretly in your heart hoping that something like goes terribly wrong for them, if you're hoping for some form of misfortune in their life, for vengeance to be exacted by some third party, um, then you probably haven't forgiven them. You probably haven't forgiven them. But if you are in this place where you're like, you know what, if there were signs of growth, if they would confess and show signs of repentance, then maybe I might consider reconciliation. Then I'd say you've probably forgiven them. You've probably reached a place of forgiveness. That doesn't mean that you have to go and reconcile. It doesn't mean that you have to take it to fruition, but it's this idea that like, you know what, I've done the work, I've absorbed the offense, and we're good. If they ever chose to be good back, it would probably be good. Then you've probably forgiven them. These are ways to, that we can know whether or not we've forgiven somebody. Forgiveness is something you can do. Reconciliation can only be offered, hoping that the forgiven will receive it. I believe that within the imagination of forgiveness, there is this hope for reconciliation. Forgiveness says, I will absorb the cost and I will pass on to you 
what I have received, what has been given to me, I'll pass this on to you. And I hope, I hope that you come. I hope that you come and confess and repent so that we can form some form of relationship again. And sometimes the second part, the confession and repentance never comes. But I believe that forgiveness hopes that one day it will. That one day it will. But until then, know that you do not have to continue to subject yourself to the abuser. Like sometimes when we think that forgiveness is reconciliation is that we stick around way too long. We're saying, well, I'm trying to forgive you. I'm trying to forgive you. And they just keep heaping on offense after offense, abuse after abuse. And you don't have to stick around for that. There's a proverb that says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool shall repeat its folly. And you don't have to be there when the fool returns back to his vomit. You shouldn't be there. That's the wisdom of the proverb, is that you do not have to be there when the fool returns back to his folly and to his vomit. But I do hope that you continue to pray for change. That you do hope that your brother would be transformed, that your sister would be transformed, that one day that they would come to know wisdom instead of folly, that they would continue to know one day light instead of darkness. Because Jesus doesn't just give his life so that we can be forgiven, but instead he gives his life so that we might come to faith and repentance and be reconciled through him. And in Jesus we receive complete forgiveness and complete reconciliation at the same time. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has, proclaimed, which has been proclaimed to all of the nations under heaven. And so because we've been reconciled with Christ, we seek to be unified and reconciled to one another. But know that we have not failed if we have forgiven and reconciliation has not come. And know that on this side of heaven, Complete and full reconciliation may never come between us as humans. But just because we've forgiven somebody doesn't mean that we have to pick up the relationship right where it left off or that we ever have to become friends again. But I believe that reconciliation calls us to still love our brother, to still seek that their soul might be saved, and to trust the Lord when he says, do not repay evil for evil, for vengeance is mine. We need to trust that. And because all that we do as members of the kingdom is the hope is to imitate the kingdom of God, it is my hope for us this morning is that we would go out imitating this kingdom, this, this kingdom of absurd and unfair forgiveness where God has called us to do it, seeking reconciliation whenever it is possible, fighting for it whenever it is possible, knowing that it might never come, but still not giving up hope because I believe that forgiveness 
hopes for it in its imagination. That whenever it is all possible, especially among us, especially among brothers and sisters and us in this room, that we would seek reconciliation so that we can make true the statement that we proclaim each Sunday. That because we've been reconciled to Christ, we've been reconciled to one another, and we are a family. That's the imagination of forgiveness. And that's the imagination that God is trying to grow us in as we become kingdom-minded, as we become to grow in the Spirit, as we allow the Spirit to move and grow within us. So we're going to move to a time where we are going to be able to have a response to the gospel message that we received this morning. We're going to be able to respond by worship. The worship team is going to come up and we're going to sing some songs and we're going to praise God for his amazing, (laughs) unfair, absurd, reckless forgiveness that he has displayed upon us in our life. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to participate in communion. We're going to set up communion in two stations. And you can go whenever you feel moved in the next three songs to go and remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave so that our debt might be absorbed, his body broken and his blood poured, and we dip the cracker into the juice. And we praise him and we celebrate the canceling of our debt and the absorption of our debt through his life. And we'll have an opportunity to give because he has so richly given that we would give back as well. And finally, also know that in this time is, is a time for prayer and reflection and for meditation. So if you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit and pray, pray. If you need to talk to somebody, I'll be in the back. And if you want to receive prayer, Tony or I would love to pray for you this morning. So there are many ways that we can respond this morning. And I just pray that the Spirit would be growing inside of us an imagination that crushes forgiving our brother seven times, but that we might come to understand and know what it is to forgive continually, without fail, as the Father forgives us. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, we praise you. We thank you that as 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 we